Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. This episode, we're going to dive inside the body and the mind of your bird dog with veterinarian Dr. Stuart Dalton, who uh, just happens to be two miles from the Pheasants Forever office, so he's sort of the the residential, uh, the resident veterinarian for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's headquarters. Um, it also happens to be uh, the Bird Dogs for Habitat month all of April. So in the spirit of connecting healthy habitat, healthy bird dogs, um, we wanted to, to dive into some, some common veterinary uh, questions. Um, a little bit of an update. Oh, and, and I've been remiss. I didn't introduce Andrew Vavra. Oh, I'm, I'm here, and I just appreciate the opportunity to talk to a vet without having to open my wallet. So I'm definitely well, looking forward to that. We'll, we'll get you later. I'm sure you will. You always do. Uh, since this episode is going to be uh, airing around the third week of April, let's give a status update on the 2019 Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign in which your $1 donation equals a single vote for your favorite breed of bird dog. So if you go online, birddogsforhabitat.org, become a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever at $35, you can throw your support to your favorite breed of choice. The front runner at the moment is the German Shorthair. Believe it or not, love it up, Bob. That <laughs> doesn't really surprise <laughs> it, me at it, this point. <laughs> it's not over. Um, the short hair has won. Um, I think two years ago, the short hair won. The wire hair won a year ago. Uh, the Labrador has a win under its belt. The Irish Setter has a win, and the Vishla nice. won the first two years of the Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign. Spreading it around a little bit. Yeah. That's good. So I think the top three as we record this with uh, over 12,000 votes recorded. So that's $12,000 thanks to all the donors out there. And that's uh, multiplied three times because of our partners. So so when we say 12,000, it's automatically $36,000 going to our habitat mission thanks to uh, Irish Sitter Boots, Rufflin Kennels, Perina Pro Plan Dog Food, the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association and Project Upland, our official media partner, $36,000 with the short hair, a narrow margin in front over the wire hair trying to defend the title. And Labrad- it, Labrador is in yep. third, Lab- not too far behind. Labs are third, but I remember, so this is, what, our seventh year doing this? Yep. We used to actually separate the labs based on color because <laughs> it, it was such a sure thing that, you know, the great dogs at the labs they are would yeah. win this. Um, we had to separate them. But but now we combine it just <laughs> under one, and they're just sitting in third place. So I don't know if it's all of our, our versatile hunting dog friends that are kind of skewing the results here. But, I mean, the lab people really need to step it up. Can you uh, tell? That the, sounds like a challenge. It, yeah, it is a challenge. <laughs> you could tell the lab guy in the um, right. in the right. in the room, right? right? I'm glad I'm sitting in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I'm a versatile dog too, though. I've just I've had the lab longer. How about that? Okay. Right. But uh, you know the the important point, um, you know, even for the folks that uh, are, are placing donations for some of the uh, pups that are. Uh, a little bit lar- farther down on the leaderboard, all those dollars go into our habitat mission. 
um, because we all love bird dogs and we all love places for those bird dogs to hunt. And when you're a member of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, 90 cents on the dollar, this is since our beginning in 1982, 90 cents on the dollar has gone into um, our habitat mission. We're the most efficient nonprofit conservation organization in the country. So whether you're putting a dollar into the donation, a $35 membership, there's been a number of $500 dog life memberships that have been purchased through the, um, through the campaign. No matter what you donate, you can rest assured that it's going to exactly what you intend. Wild places, quality habitat, and um, you know, future future places for you to take your bird dog, including our uh, membership director out there, Brian Essling, who has a 13-week-old German uh, wire hair, the newest patient of uh, Dr. Dalton. I believe you're talking about Rainy. And I'm talking about Rainy, <laughs> and you have you have um, a wound to prove it. I do. I have a memory of Rainy. Uh, Rainy is a very food-motivated little puppy, <laughs> which will come in handy come training time. Um, we like to use various um, tasty distractions, and I thought I would try some easy cheese on a tongue depressor with him yesterday. <laughs> And he would have eaten the tongue depressor. He would have taken my whole hand. And I, I got away with one puncture from one of his little puppy canines, and it, it, uh, it bled most of the day. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was real. So I was like, all right, well, we'll have to make a note in this chart about that. <laughs> well, you, you should know you're not the first person that's been wounded by Rainy, the 13-week old wire. Golly, yeah, so he's, he has a track record. But, uh, he, he is a very, very cute puppy, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> just have to be careful well it, and like I, I said at the beginning you're probably as we as a crow flies as a crow flies you're probably one mile from pheasants forever's headquarters in white bear lake um maybe two miles if you're driving so you've you've seen just about everybody at the pheasants forever headquarters including my dogs i've been yep. coming to you for for over 12 years with trammel um izzy and yep. esky and you've just been spectacular uh coaching me through through my bird dog pups. well th- yeah thanks it's a i'm um honored that you've trusted us and me for that long and uh we yeah we love to see these dogs they're you know they're well cared for they're uh, generally very healthy dogs and you know, you folks have always been really open to advice that we can provide, whether we're hunters or not, you know, helping you provide um, care and keeping these dogs healthy. It's a, it's a win-win. It's good. So b- before we <coughs> dive into some of the, we're, we're going to focus a lot of time on common questions mm-hmm. that bird dog owners have for their veterinarians. Sure. Um, but why don't you give us your backstory a little bit about how you ended up here two miles from Pheasants Forever's headquarters as uh, the veterinarian to the to the right. Habitat organization. Yeah, it, my my route was rather circuitous. I was not one of these people that leaps from their mother's womb knowing they want to be a veterinarian, quite <laughs> honestly. I grew up in Kentucky in a horse family, a fox hunting family. I spent plenty of time around um, uh, foxhounds, English foxhounds, and, and as well as dogs and whatever we could catch at home or on the farm property and things like that. So had a strong animal background, um, ended up doing my geology degree actually from Brown University out in Rhode Island back in 85. And um, but then it ended up teaching outdoor education. I did some volunteer archaeology work on some different places and around the world and traveled extensively, 
came home, got married, and, and did some consulting work and just decided that uh, I got tired of cleaning up other people's messes, basically. These mm. leaky underground storage tanks or oil refineries and um, decided I really wanted to do something with animals. And veterinary medicine is a really versatile degree. You go to school, you get your uh, degree, and there's a, a lot of things you can do with it. So I went back to school, got a second bachelor's degree in order to qualify for vet school. Um, as far as moving to Minnesota, my, uh, wife's family was here at the time and we didn't have kids, but thought that might change soon. And, and in fact did during school hmm. Both our daughters were born while I was in vet school. So been here since 93 and, um, been at this particular location since 99. So been here for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. And not to take us too far on a tangent, but I believe you're a mountaineer too, right? You, you didn't you climb Kilimanjaro recently? N- no, I. So, uh, it, it's on my life list. Okay. Um, I've done some climbing. I've been up Mount Rainier a couple of different times by different routes. I've um, done some other climbs, and I would love to do Kilimanjaro and and some different things. It's uh, um. It's tough getting in shape at 55. <laughs> it takes time and effort and motivation, and I need to get back to it. But that is on my list of hobbies, and uh, I would I would love to do more. Yeah. Well, speaking of getting in shape, let's let's start there. <laughs> right. Uh, the obvious question: What's the what's the the best thing that bird hunters out there listening can do as you know as we approach spring mm-hmm. summer months to get their dog ready for the fall? So I think we it probably would make sense to back up and say that come wintertime, we see so many dogs this time of year that come into the spring overweight. And that's an avoidable problem because basically those dogs are getting too many calories and not enough exercise over the winter. So unless your dog is a scheduling dog or a really active dog, they probably don't need as many calories during the winter as they do in the more active months. So that means less food in the bowl, fewer treats. So either reduce how much food's going in the bowl uh, appropriately, look at a reduced calorie food possibly, fewer treats, fruits and vegetables can be great low calorie, high fiber, high vitamin treats. Um, Obviously exercise them when you safely can. Um, And then um, hopefully you're coming into spring with a a dog that is in a good weight range as opposed to having to start out with getting some weight off of them. So you'll be well ahead of the game if your dog comes into spring um, at an appropriate weight and then you're off and running, literally. So um, that's probably one of the first things I would recommend is to try to think ahead and uh, try to make sure your dog um, is at a healthy weight before your seasons get started. So you mentioned that you can change the type of food that a dog's eating during the winter. I know some guys that are very staunch, and my dog only eats, you know, this brand dog food, and always gets two cups, no matter the season. Right. So are you saying, like, you can change foods frequently, or do you think, like, you don't want to mess with it too often? Or So I think there's two things. If you've got somebody that's very staunch with the brand they feed, I would say, great, just feed them maybe 25% less. They just need less going in the bowl. Um, Dogs... The vast majority of dogs will tolerate a variety of diets. Historically, I fed my dog a couple different foods, and I switched back and forth. The first time you change diet, you want to do it very gradually over a week or two so that their uh, their gut microflora gets used to digesting those that new food. Once they've been exposed to it, most dogs um, can switch back and forth, um, and it provides some variety, and, and, and there's a number of things that's not absolutely necessary. Um, so you don't necessarily have to switch them to a different locale food during the winter. You could just reduce calories by feeding them a little bit less, but um, it's absolutely okay to provide a, a variety of diets for dogs. 
um, but it's not necessary, absolutely necessary. Is there a best, uh, from a health perspective, <coughs> to feed once a day, twice a day, or is that? I a am a strong believer in at least twice daily, and we, you know this may come up in other settings, but I see a lot of dogs if they're fed once daily, um, they're at risk for uh, certain things like bloat, and I think you know maybe we'll talk about that later. But the other thing I see a lot with dogs that eat only once a day is sometimes these dogs get upset stomachs. A lot of these dogs are, are fed first thing in the morning, and mm-hmm. a lot of times people come in and say, "Yeah, my." dogs throwing up just this brown liquid which is typically bile it's the digestive juice sitting in a, in a stomach and what happens is these dogs are fed in the morning and and early uh, in the morning uh, sometime before breakfast they they know breakfast is coming they start thinking about eating which um, automatically stimulates the production of digestive juices and these things are acting on an empty st- unprotected stomach and so you get this reflexive sort of bile vomiting so by feeding a couple of times a day roughly every 12 hours you can go a long way to avoiding that um, mm-hmm. I've had that help in a number of situations so I'm I'm some people say my dog absolutely won't eat but once a day and it's like well that, then that's what it is but if it were up to me I would feed dogs roughly every 12 hours for so the most part th- that's how I operate and you know, I, I feed twice a day both of my dogs um, but it seems during the hunting season the timing question always comes up mm-hmm. and there's lots of different schools of thought in terms of I would still prefer to feed my dogs mm-hmm. right away in the morning. Mm-hmm. So how much time do you need between feeding and exercise and on the reverse end mm-hmm. when they're done hunting? Yeah. Like how much time do you need before you can top them off? Yeah, that's a good idea. So for one thing, you could always during those seasons, you could adjust maybe instead of, you know, two larger meals, maybe they get three or four smaller meals during the day. So they might uh, tolerate that better and it might work better with scheduling. Um, usually it's a good idea if they've been actively exercising, not just walking around the park, but, you know, probably 30 minutes or so to kind of give their system a chance to, to quiet and calm down. And then after they've eaten, probably a good hour, you know, it's the old don't go swimming after you ate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it applies to dogs too. They, they probably should stay fairly quiet for you know uh, probably an hour or so the stomach in general empties over the course of a couple hours so you've gotten given them a chance to have a significant amount of what they've eaten to be moving through their gut before they're out running around which potentially could cause problems well and you, we were dancing around bloat mm-hmm. twisted stomach so yeah. explain what that is and yeah. how to avoid it and what breeds might be more yeah. susceptible so uh, first i think it's important to to sort of define our terms. So bloat is basically simply over extension or distension of the stomach. You can think of the stomach, it's much like the urinary bladder. These things are like balloons. They're made to stretch and and uh, accept a, ver- a varying capacity of liquid or, or solid material. Um, and what can happen though is that there's a limit to that and, and if the stomach gets over distended, that's what we call bloat. Yeah. And that can happen... Um, with food, you get a dog that gets into the food bin, and some of these dogs do not have an off switch when it comes to eating. So they will eat as <laughs> much as they can. Like Rainy? <laughs> right. <laughs> Regardless of whether it's attached to the veterinarian's hand or not. <laughs> um, so you'll get these dogs coming in, and they'll get into the garage, and they, they will eat. Um, and they come in, and they look hangdog, and you take a picture, and their stomach is in a normal position. It just looks like a basketball full of ingesta. Mm. That in of itself isn't a huge problem um, as long as the stomach stays in place. The other thing, dogs can gulp air. It's called air aphasia, literally air eating. Um, if they're stressed, anxious, exercising, they can gulp air, and so the, the stomach can blow up like a balloon. And that is is a, 
a, a similar issue. Hmm. So the bloat itself, the distension, uh, usually can be managed with um, tincture of time, allowing the body to process and digest the food that's there. If there's a lot of gas, you can you can do some anti-gas medications to like you know, gas X and things like that, potentially to get rid of the gas and allow the stomach to return to normal size. The trouble comes in when, when the stomach moves out of place. And that's what uh, GDV means, gastric dilation with volvulus. So gastric dilation, volvulus, stomach, expansion, and then twisting. So if you think about the intestinal tract, You've got the esophagus as a tube coming into the stomach, and then you've got the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine going out of the stomach. And the stomach is basically suspended from these two linear components. And what can happen is that if the stomach gets distended, it's got a lot of weight and momentum. And um, in in the wrong setting, and we'll talk about the predisposing factors, Mm -hmm. that stomach can twist on its axis, the axis being the esophagus and the small intestine. So it can twist 90 degrees, it can twist 360 degrees. Um, regardless of how much it twists, that's a real problem. It's a life-threatening situation because as soon as that happens, you're pinching off blood supply to the stomach. Oftentimes the spleen gets uh, in, entrapped in this twisting. Mm. Um, and losing <laughs> blood supply is, is obviously a, a horrible thing to have happen. And so that's a, a, a life-threatening situation. Dilation is not a life-threatening situation. When the stomach flips or twists, that's when the, the clock starts ticking. So um, those dogs um, need uh, interventional treatment, oftentimes, you know, emergency surgery, absolutely as soon as possible, because they can absolutely die from that. They can go into shock and they can die from that. How do you know it happened? So signs uh, for for bloat, and, and honestly, you can't tell if it's bloat versus, versus GDV. Def- okay. There's no way to tell well, just by looking. that's a little looking. scary. <laughs> it is. You, it is. It absolutely is. So um, that's where uh, getting an x-ray is important because uh, x-rays will tell us the story. So um, uh, typically, these dogs will be very hangdog. They'll be depressed. A lot of times, they'll be non-productively retching. They'll try to throw up. They might be drooling. Um, as things progress, they may collapse. They may go into shock. So elevated heart rate, cool extremities, you know, uh, things like that that are a bigger problem. But the x-rays can tell us the difference. The bloat, we can see the stomach is in a normal position. If they've torsed, if they've twisted, um, it's called a double bubble uh, pattern where uh, gas pockets in the stomach move into abnormal positions and, and we can look at an x-ray and identify that. And the time frame we're talking about is extremely tight. You know, oh. it's not like a couple days your dog's hang dog. No. It's like uh, I mean, it, the 20 tors- minutes. The torsion can happen in seconds yeah. um, and then um, as soon as that happens, the blood supply is decreasing. So it can... Um, it can progress very quickly, and obviously it, it totally depends on lots of factors, but um, it, it's it's not something to sit on. That's a, It's a true emergency. If you're at all concerned that your dog may have bloated or have a GDV, because, again, it's really hard to tell the difference from the outside. Their, the abdomens may look distended, but um, you really need an X-ray to know for sure. How do you prevent it? Yeah, so you had asked about the, the um, some of the breeds and risk factors, so mm-hmm. let, let me go back to that real yep. quick. So. The typical, um, I'm going to go to the GDV because that's the most serious condition. Any dog can potentially bloat by overeating. But the, the twisting part is really an anatomical issue. So these are typically deep-chested dogs. Danes, Dobermans, uh, some of the sight hounds, you know, these dogs that you think of as having a very large chest capacity, or, uh, uh, lung capacity, and, and rib cage because the stomach sits up underneath the, the rib cage. And so there's a lot of potential space for the stomach to twist. 
Um, uh, they also tend to be more male than female. Hmm. Uh, oftentimes they're anxious dogs, so they're panting and maybe swallowing air and things like that. They tend to be dogs that eat very quickly, um, exercising too soon after eating. Um, uh, if, certainly if they've had a previous episode, they're more likely to, to tours again. Um, so as far as uh, preventing... There are some things in that list that you can prevent. You can slow your dog, you slow down your dog's eating by either offering frequent small meals during the day, or there are special bowls or dispensers that will dispense small amounts of food, um, keeping them quiet for the hour after they eat. Um, if they're a really anxious dog, how do we manage anxiety in dogs with managing their environment, modifying their behavior, anti-anxiety medications, things like that. The other option is there is a surgical a procedure called a gastropexy, where the stomach is surgically attached, typically to the right inside wall of the abdomen um, through a variety of techniques. But the idea is that its position is um, tacked permanently to, so it cannot twist. And there are... Um, Certainly plenty of dogs out there that have had those uh, in an effort to prevent a future torsion. So the, you know, a lot of times when, when these at-risk breeds are in for their routine elective surgery, say spays and neuters or something like that, um, the gastropexy can be added in as an additional procedure in a hope of, obviously you never know if your dog's going to torse, mm -hmm. but you can, they can undergo that procedure t as, a, as hopefully insurance that it won't happen. Okay. You mentioned uh, breeds, uh, you know, Danes, uh, Dobermans. Irish setters will be on that list, or uh, setters in general. Um, yeah, the the deep-chested dogs typically, okay. and they're they're going to be the large breeds. I, I I don't know if I've ever seen a pug with a GDD. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just there's just not room. <laughs> There's not a lot of pug hunting dogs out no. there either. So I think no. we're clear there. <laughs> right. uh, how often do you see it? Fortunately. Not very often. When we're in vet school, you know, you, you tend to see the worst of the worst, and we're all like, oh, my gosh, we're going to see a GDV every week. And we just, we really don't. I think a lot of people know a lot about um, how to prevent it. So sure. it doesn't seem to happen. You know, we, we don't, we, we have an emergency clinic in Oakdale that we use, and um, we don't get many emergency reports coming from them for after hours for the procedure. So it's good. It can certainly can happen. Um, you know, I in my 20 years, I've just seen a couple of them. Um, it, and, and so it's fortunately, knock on wood, it's not something that's uh, really common, uh, but it, it can happen in a blink of an eye. Okay. All right, moving along to yep. what might be more common, or it seems like mm -hmm. it is tick-borne disease, and yeah. we're, we're um, finally reaching spring in Minnesota, spring which means... 2.0, uh, yes, we're I'm trying picking, again. I'm picking ticks off my dogs now. Yes. Um, they've been out certainly since early March. Um, the, the deal with ticks is the, the adults will hibernate um, over the winter, and even in the middle of winter, if it gets above freezing, they can wake up and go looking for a blood meal. So I've had people tell me they found ticks crawling around on the snow in, on a warm February day. Hmm. So um, the, 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 the ticks are real. The disease we worry about most um, significantly in Minnesota is Lyme disease by far and away as far as the tick transmitted diseases. We're the, the upper Midwest is the second hot spot for Lyme disease once you get off the East Coast. It was found in Old Lyme, Connecticut originally. That's where the name came from. And so New England and down the eastern seaboard is the, is the primary area, but there's a lot of it here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. So prevention-wise probably comes into three 
I always like groups of three. So three things. One, checking your dog and removing any ticks that you find. Absolutely. I mean, that, that goes for yourself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, using a good quality tick preventive. And there are a variety of products out there. There are good topicals. There are good chewable products. There are great collars. And those are options that um, you know may or may not be appropriate for every dog. And so that's a great thing to discuss with your veterinarian, the pros and cons of those different options. But I would absolutely lose one of those. And some people will combine the chewable or the topical, and the and a collar. So there are some applications for that. And then vaccination um, is very helpful. There's um, been a vaccine for Lyme disease for quite a few years now. There's actually been a newer version of the vaccine that we've carried for the last few years that um, we believe is more effective and more comprehensive than sort of the older version of the vaccine. Um, but a vaccination is uh, extremely important. There is no vaccine for humans, and people are asking me all the time why we don't have one. And mm-hmm. You know, originally the vaccine and, and for people caused too many similar clinical signs and it wasn't safe enough and effective enough. But we have a, a very effective vaccine for dogs um, and it's generally tolerated really well. So, um, you know, so checking for ticks, using a good quality preventive, whether it's one or a combination of things, and then making sure your dog's vaccinated. Well, as uh, someone who's had Lyme's disease, yeah, it, it's miserable. Um, so in terms of the things that we can it. actually be proactive about, yeah. this has to be number one on, on your uh, list if it, you're anywhere in the states that especially I, have Lyme's. I'm, I don't require to, I, I don't require a whole lot of my clients. I you know require a rabies vaccine. I don't require the Lyme, but um, I'd be hard-pressed to be shown a dog that I don't think is potentially at risk. We have suburban wildlife that can bring the ticks in just because you live in a backyard with a fence. Um, the, the ticks are potentially out there. So, you know, the, uh, the, the vast majority of my clients I would recommend the vaccine for. Um, I, I joke that Lyme seems to be one of the few diseases in veterinary medicine that we seem to have a better handle on than they do in human medicine. We have a vaccine. We check for it every year. The, the, most clinics are doing blood tests when you do your, uh, check your dog for heartworm. We can also check for three different tick diseases. So we're doing that every year. We've got good quality preventive options and things like that. And, and, like you said, you've had Lyme disease. Pretty much everybody has either had Lyme disease or knows someone that's had it. It's mm-hmm. a very common disease. And in many cases, it, those diagnoses are made kind of later in the course of the of the disease. It's not always picked up uh, right away. So we tend to be really vigilant. I, I diagnosed and started treating a dog a couple weeks ago for active Lyme disease. And it, it's, um, it's real. It's here. It's an endemic disease that we're not going to get rid of. It's only going to get worse. The ticks... Not every deer tick, it's the deer ticks, or technically they're called the black-legged ticks, but the deer ticks that carry Lyme disease, more and more, the higher percentage of those ticks in the population are going to carry the disease. Not every tick has it. Um, the, the other tough thing is that the nymph stage of the tick, which is the sort of one of the baby immature stages, carry the disease as well. And deer ticks, even when they're engorged, are not very big. The, the nymphs are basically like a a, a pinpoint on it. Hmm. They're tiny. You're mm-hmm. not going to find those. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I would agree that it's one of the things that's uh, highly preventable and with a lot of effective products at our hand. And, and, and it's, um, it's important for the vast majority of dogs. And there's more to worry about, unfortunately, than just Lyme disease too. You got anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spot. Yeah. Are those things that you can, uh, um, vaccinate against? So we don't have vaccine for those things. Okay. And fortunately we don't see at least here, we haven't seen clinical disease. We test for anaplasmosis. We also test for ehrlichiosis. Ehrlichiosis is another tick disease. We don't routinely tick f- check for um, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, although we can. Um, ehrlichia, we commonly see dogs that have antibodies that have been exposed to that bacteria. 
typically coming from out of state. We don't have a lot of active disease for Lickia in Minnesota so much. It tends to be in sort of more southern and western areas. So we do see that showing up. Um, anaplasma, we see quite a few dogs that have been exposed. So they've been bitten by the tick that has anaplasma. It can be the same, it's the same type of tick that carries Lyme disease. And it can be the same tick. It can have multiple bacteria in it. Hmm. Um, we don't commonly see clinical disease. Uh, anaplasmosis can look just like Lyme disease with fever, lethargy, loss of appetite, a shifting leg lameness. Hmm. There's some other tests we can do to look for evidence of anaplasma. So we don't treat for anaplasmosis very commonly. We we do have circumstances though where we'll do it. We'll we'll have a dog and it'll fit with everything and. But we just can't nail it down. We think it has a tick-borne disease. We commonly will treat anyway just in case because we know there are other diseases out there, and we may just not be picking it up at the time. So we tend to have a high degree of suspicion for tick diseases depending on how an animal presents. So the symptoms you just rattled off yeah. there, those are the same symptoms that you know us dog owners should be looking for yeah. in terms of limes as right. well. Right. So fever lethargy, loss of appetite, and and a lameness. And typically, it's a shifting leg lameness. We'll classically get pain of the joint nearest the tick bite, but it will move around. It'll be a polyarthropy. It, it'll be a multiple joints affected. You'll have somebody that comes in and says, yeah, my dog was limping on its front left leg, and now it's limping on its back right leg. And, and, and it, it moves around, and it doesn't make any sense to them, but it makes sense to us because you've got multiple inflamed joints. And so they're favoring whatever joint is the most painful that day. Hmm. Fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's scary <laughs> stuff. Is yeah, it, it is. is. It's, uh, it, you know, and, and we all worry about these things as dog owners. And, mm-hmm. you know, that those are the things that can really um, damage a dog's health long term. Oh, right? abs- abs- I, I just had a client uh, recently who we were talking about this vaccine and why I recommend it. She says, oh, yeah, my it was, um, it was her niece just lost a beloved dog to Lyme disease because it affected their kidneys. And this is tragic because it can be a fatal disease Lyme disease it's not just my dog's achy it can affect their kidneys it can cause permanent damage to joints it also can in 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 certain cases affect their heart and their nervous system so it's not just an annoyance it's not just you know oh my dog's got this infection it can it can cause serious disease and serious damage that's why we're really proactive in testing vaccinating looking for it if we have a dog that comes in with signs I've done plenty of Lyme testinal dogs I thought had it that didn't, that I was glad were negative, but, you know, we, we still keep checking. Uh, as a reminder to listeners, we're talking with uh, veterinarian uh, Dr. Stuart Dalton of White Bear Animal Hospital um, in this Bird Dogs for Habitat-themed mm-hmm. podcast. Before we leave diseases, mm-hmm. any, any other diseases that bird hunting <coughs> folks should be particularly yeah. concerned about um, beyond tick. Yeah, so really. a couple things that would come to mind. One would be intestinal parasites, Giardia. Um, Giardia, um, they used to call it beaver fever. I had it myself when I was traveling in Asia years ago. This is a, a protozoal parasite, uh, often f- um, uh, contracted from contaminated water. Um, and so, you know, the dogs are in and out of water frequently and, and um uh, that can cause vomiting, diarrhea, um, loss of appetite, some of those nonspecific gastrointestinal signs. We're not, it, it may or may not be the same Giardia people can get, but it's uh, one of those things that we consider the zoonotic risk, meaning um, if a dog has it, potentially people could get it. So if there's any sort of you know, fecal contamination. So um, Giardia would be one, and that's not anything you can 
we, we don't have a good vaccine or anything like that. We'd be more like making sure you're checking your dog's fecal sample at least once a year. Hmm. Um, maybe you want to do it uh, a, a couple of weeks after the end of your season in case they picked up anything. Cause we'd always like to know about it sooner than later, but it takes a while for certain infections to show. Um, so Giardia as a, as far as parasites would be one of the other one, um, is a bacterial disease called leptospirosis. So leptospirosis or lepto is a, uh, potentially serious bacterial infection causes kidney disease, uh, possibly liver disease. This is a bacteria that um, is within the wild uh, population of mammals. So um, anything with hair or fur, so deer, raccoons, rodents, beaver, all these kind of things, um, they, they shed the bacteria in their urine, and then that urine can either uh, be infectious on the ground, dogs have a fabulous sense of smell, and smelling urine is one of their favorite things. So mm-hmm. if they're smelling or, or licking the ground where one of these animals has urinated, it doesn't take very much of this bacteria. Or if they're swimming in um, puddles, ponds, lake streams that are contaminated, um, leptospirosis can be a real issue. So that's one that we recommend vaccinating for. We've got a vaccine that covers the four most common serobars. Leptospirosis has a number of what are called serovars. You can think of it as kind of like different breeds of dog. There are different serovars of leptospirosis. And so the vaccine we have covers the ones that are more or less most common for the series. It's not perfect, but it's the best vaccine we have available. The other thing about leptospirosis is once again, like the Giardia, it's zoonotic. So people can get leptospirosis from the environment. Hmm. There was a, a story out of Illinois a few years ago where a number of uh, triathletes got leptospirosis from the swim portion of the race because it had rained the night before. And wash this bacteria into the lake where they were swimming or if your dog were to be sick with leptospirosis and you don't know it they're having urine accidents in the house because it causes kidney disease you're cleaning up the urine you're not protecting yourself it gets on your hand it gets in a cut so um we're always thinking about human health as well as uh, our patient's health and so um you know the leptospirosis is one uh, that we think is very important and the vast majority of uh patients i recommend kind of like the lyme i think Mm -hmm. the two l's the lyme and the lepto vaccines are important for most dogs yeah you mentioned some things dogs can give humans Mm -hmm. right I got the flu. Can mm-hmm. I give the flu or a common cold to my bird dog? More than likely not. I mean, most of most of these things are viral, mm-hmm. and obviously we'll, we'll not have names for lots of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, that's not one that I would typically worry about. Intestinal parasites would be one. You know, uh, leptospirosis, uh, rabies, certainly. But I mean, from a practical standpoint, we don't worry about that getting from our pets. But absolutely, our animals can get it from wildlife. So that's why it's so important to vaccinate them all. Right. Um, you know, there are a few other ones, but those are probably the ones that people are worried most about. Let's move from um, diseases, bacteria to toxins. Okay. You know, most <laughs> folks know that uh, you shouldn't feed your dog a Snickers bar, right? Chocolate's a bad deal right. for, for bird dogs or dogs in general. Wh- mm-hmm. What else hits that list? So let's see. We can break it, as long as you're talking about food, we can kind of break it down into major categories. So food... Um, human foods, uh, grapes, raisins, uh, we don't know exactly what the mechanism is that can cause uh, disease in dogs, and we don't know what the dose is. It seems to be very dog-dependent, so in general, we say no grapes or raisins. It may not be a problem for your dog, or it may be a big problem. Onions, garlic, um, nuts, avocados are on the list. Hmm. Um, chocolate, the, 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 the issue with chocolate um, tends to be the higher... The, the, the higher percentage of, the, of 
the cocoa powder that's in there, um, which contains theobromin, which is the, the stimulant that we worry about. And the smaller the dog, that's a bad combination. So a, a, a big dog that eats a little bit of milk chocolate, honestly, is probably not a huge deal. Mm. Uh, but you'd still want to watch for typically gastrointestinal signs first, vomiting, diarrhea, or possibly evidence of stimulation, anxiety, restlessness, things like that. Um, so human foods, you know, it's that's not an exhaustive list. Uh, but then there's medication, certainly um, over there are a number of pet medications that are made to be chewable, which is great as long as the dog gets their dose. But if they get the whole bottle of chewable medication, that can be too much. Mm. Um, certainly human medications can be problematic. There are a lot of um, antidepressant blood pressure medications, um, uh, ADD medications, some of these different things, prescription medications that a dog gets a handle on a bottle and loves to chew the top off. Uh, that's a problem. Over-the-counter non-prescription medications. Uh, the one I worry most about is ibuprofen. Hmm. Um, ibuprofen um, has a very narrow margin of safety for dogs. Uh, and so some people think if their dog's painful, I'm going to give them some Advil or things like that. And I would never recommend that. Um, it can it can cause major problems. And then you've got stuff like what do you find in your garage and your garden shed? Everybody knows about um, antifreeze and coolants, but uh, rodenticides, mole baits, um, fertilizers. There's then then there's then there's plants. So that's another whole category. Mm-hmm. Um, nightshade, which is a, a a wild sort of weed, wild flower. Um, uh, azaleas and rhododendrons, sago palms. There's another. There's a whole class of plants, and they're categorized as, as non moderately or severely toxic and i think it's really important everybody knows what they have as far as plants in their home as well as out in their yard it's important to know if you have anything that might be toxic so that's again just sort of category wise there's there's a lot of stuff out there yeah so if we can go back to the medicines real quick sure i think that's probably one of the most common things that pets might actually get into Mm because they're around the house right and you know i'm not going to name any names but my wife um, (laughs) every once in a while i'll 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 find like an aspirin or something just randomly on the floor right right? yeah um so i know you said the the dosage depends on the dog and all that but Mm -hmm. you know if if my 35 pound Brittany. Now, eats mm-hmm. a couple of pills. Is that something I need to be overly concerned about? Or is it just like, okay, keep an eye on them? It, or like, you're not going to like my answer, but it totally depends on the pill. You know, okay. uh, um, if, a, if, a, if a good-sized dog eats a 81-milligram baby-sized coated aspirin, it's probably not going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. If they eat a bunch of adult strength or eat, they eat even one high blood pressure medication or uh, ADD tablet or antidepressants and things like that, it could be serious. So it's important that um, people have phone numbers available. There are pet poison hotlines where for a fee, they will um, help you determine um, how much your animal is at risk and they can look up their apps. You can get for your phone that list pet poisons, which can be handy. Um, Having uh, a phone number handy for an emergency, 24-hour emergency veterinary service uh, is important as well. So the the simple answer is there's no simple answer. Um, it really depends. So when it comes to <clears throat> at-home remedies then, mm-hmm. um, what's your professional opinion on people at home inducing vomiting? Um, I would say it's a last resort. I just uh-huh. had a dog earlier this week who um, they suspected ingested Advil, which has ibuprofen in it, um, and we recommend that they bring the dog in for us to induce vomiting to try to empty the stomach and, and do other things. We gave the dog fluids. We gave the dog activated charcoal, which can act as an absorbent. So um, depending on how long it's been, um, inducing vomiting in the hospital is much is safer and more effective. And over time, people have used hydrogen peroxide at home, and mm-hmm. I 
again, I would I put that in the category of talk to your vet about it. It's not in, in, in our hands, I haven't found it to be terribly successful, and there is some risk. There'll be a lot of gas building up in the stomach, and here we go back to bloat something. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I am, I'm, I'm not going to recommend that right now. The, the best thing to do would be to call your vet or the emergency service and talk to them to see if bringing them in to have um, um, us induce vomiting and other treatments would make sense. Good advice. Yeah. It, it does sound like it, we, we do this all the time in all sorts of ways. We anthropomorphize our dogs, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we give them human feelings, human thoughts, and we treat them for issues in the same way we would treat right. our children. Right. Uh, and that's dangerous road to go down. It abs- So one of my favorite stories of that, and this was several years ago, it was a Britney Spaniel, so uh, relevant for you guys, mm-hmm. um, had had been out hunting and... Um, I don't know the exact circumstances, but it, it leapt or jumped at the exact wrong time and got nailed with some bird shot. And the owner felt rightfully so that the dog was in pain, which I'm sure she was. Mm-hmm. And so gave ibuprofen thinking, oh, you know, we can take this. Um, it's going to be helpful for the dog. We saw the dog a you know, couple days later and we had the x-rays and it was looked like a starry night sky, all these little pellets. But they were all very superficial and, and weren't likely to cause a problem. We never removed any of them. The problem was the severe um, gastrointestinal disruption um, from the ibuprofen. And ibuprofen at, at, at even higher doses can, can damage the kidneys. So um, while the owner thought they were doing the right thing and the humane thing for their pet, it was actually the, 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 the injury was probably less severe than the remedy in huh. this case. So, um, <clears throat> again, that's one of those where um, um, when in doubt, you know, call somebody. So there's a lot of folks that, particularly as dogs get a little bit older, you know, they want to give something to ease that pain. Mm -hmm. And they might get Rimadyl prescribed, but then Mm -hmm. they're given aspirin over the counter. Does that fall in the same category as ibuprofen? So um, aspirin has its place. I will occasionally have an owner give a dose or two. And again, I'm not giving out doses now, but there are times when... I might use it, say, after uh, a vaccine reaction where a dog is painful after a vaccine. And I know it's going to be gone within 12 to 24 hours. And a dose or two is probably going to be fine. I do not recommend giving aspirin long-term at all. Uh, The the risk of gastric uh, ulceration and irritation is too high. Um, Absolutely, you don't want to combine it with um, other NSAIDs. NSAIDs meaning non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And you mentioned Rimadyl. Uh, which is far and away the most prescribed NSAID in veterinary medicine. The active ingredient is called carprofen. It sounds just like ibuprofen. So it's a, a prescription non that's safe and effective for dogs. Hmm. And so we use that drug a lot, either in the name brand or there's some generic options. Uh, but you have to be very careful. Those dogs can, cannot be on aspirin, cannot be on steroids. Um, you have to be very careful about that. If they have any kidney problems, we need to be super careful or, or use other things. So... Chronic pain management in older dogs is <clears throat> actually one of my favorite areas to work in because we see a lot of these dogs, and there's a lot we can do to help them. Um, a lot of these older dogs will come in. They've lost muscle mass and muscle strength, which is age-related, and we can't do a whole lot about that. Believe it or not, they used to use anabolic steroids to build muscle in these old dogs, the same stuff that gets athletes in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now you, you, You'd be hard-pressed to, to find these drugs for your dog, and rightfully so. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. a challenge, Andrew. I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm, I, the, I'm I, just waiting for the CBD oils, okay? So. <laughs> and we can talk about that too if you like. Um, then you get neurologic degeneration that can occur where the nerves just don't fire and respond like they used to. So you get dogs that are dragging toes, and it's usually their back feet. 
nerves are pretty tough to regrow and regenerate. But pain, usually from arthritis, so joint pain or muscle pain, we have lots of options. So Rimadyl, um, I commonly will use Rimadyl or Carprofen along with a really good quality um, joint glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, a, a, a multi-component sort of product. Uh, we have certain products that we really like. That's a great first start, but um, there are absolutely other medications we can use. There are other nutritional supplements. There are therapies like laser therapy, acupuncture, massage. Um, there's a lot we can do. So I, I, I never want anybody with an old dog that seems to be moving slow to think, well, it's just the aging process. There are absolutely things we can do to improve that dog's quality of life. Acupuncture and massage. Yep. Um, there is a veterinary certification for acupuncture. There is solid evidence that acupuncture has um, a real benefit. The 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 Acu, the acupuncture points um, align with um, certain neuromuscular locations in the dog's body, and stimulating those in certain ways can have absolutely beneficial effects. Hmm. My dog, I think you prescribed glucosamine chondroitin mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. Trammel, 12 mm -hmm. years old, um, probably in the nine, eight, nine year old range. And mm -hmm. it, it's terrific. Yeah. I mean, you can, it, it absolutely takes away some of that pain. Yeah. Is there, can you start that even earlier? So some people will argue that there's not enough data that glucosamine chondroitin helps arthritic dogs. Anecdotally, I've seen it be effective. And when I have a case like yours where the only thing we've done is change and put this dog in a supplement and they get dramatically better, I'm willing to accept that as proof that the product helped. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, a, like I said, a couple of products that we really like from a company whose supplements we use that we think are really good quality. Any of these supplements, I'll just remind people that they are not tightly regulated by the FDA. So there's a wide range of consistency ingredients, uh, quality of ingredients, sourcing of the ingredients. And so you really want to use something that, uh, that, that you have confidence in. So when I see a dog improve on a glucosamine product and that's all we need that's great if we don't need prescription medication there's no reason to start it right away mm -hmm. so but i would say there's even less data that says it acts in a preventive way so gotcha. i i don't put every active three-year-old dog in glucosamine i i don't think that's a fair way to spend the client's money because a good quality product these aren't cheap products there's a lot of science that goes into them the, the ingredients are not inexpensive so um as of now i i don't think there's strong evidence that the glucosamine products help prevent arthritis gotcha uh as we head into uh summer mm -hmm. Blue green algae will yeah. start appearing. Yep. How do you, how do you identify it? And yeah. Uh, what what happens when that? Yeah. So it's a great question. So blue green algae is a algae is a normal product found on water. It's usually found um, on in in quiet bodies of water, whether it's small ponds or quiet bays or inlets. Um, kind of downwind. Um, it's usually on very hot days. Oftentimes, uh, there's a significant runoff from fertilizer, whether it's lawn, farm, feedlots, you know, manure, those kind of things, because it's 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 nutrient-rich water with this algae algae will bloom. Um, it typically looks kind of like pea soup or green paint. It's literally green, this mm. kind of green sludge or slime, um, and not 
everything that looks like that's going to be blue-green algae. And not all blue-green algae is going to be toxic, but the, the, the toxins uh, that they produce are very real and can cause um, devastating disease in dogs very quickly. So the, the best thing to do would be to really try to avoid these things. Um, but there, there are certain characteristics, what it looks like, the weather, where you're finding it, that would me, me, lead you to be suspicious of it and to uh, avoid it. You know. Kind of the moral of the story is if you want to take your dog for a swim in a hot in the hot summer months, mm-hmm. get into bigger moving water. Some big, you know, you got some white caps, you got some moving water, you got the wind. You you don't have any green slime on the rocks nearby where there might have been a recent algal bloom that blew on shore. Things like that, right? Moving moving water is going to be uh, important because if your dog ingests blue green algae, I mean, you've got minutes, right? I mean, the, it's, it's the toxins can can um, uh, cause serious liver damage right within minutes it's it's something that can be very rapid and could be very challenging to to fix Um, heat Mm -hmm. and i don't know where i got this from so it might be a myth but uh, the combination of the temperature and the humidity if that's over 150 and okay. you're in trouble. Is there uh, any truth to that? So, so in other words, 75% humidity, 75 mm-hmm. degrees, you know, be careful. Yeah, I don't have that formula in my head. Um, again, with like so many things, an individual dog's ability to tolerate heat is highly dependent. Let's go back to our hunting pug. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> these dogs are not heat tolerant. They're brachycephalic. They have... Um, short nasal passages. They don't breathe well. They're, you know, um, versus you know a, a bigger dog, trim dog. You know, an overweight pug even worse. So, definitely size matters. The smaller dogs tend to be more affected by um, or the um, the heat and and um, a, a, an individual dog's sort of tolerance. Their their how how used to they uh, are they to the heat. Mm-hmm. Humidity is really important. You, you know, if you're 90 degrees and 90% humidity here is very different than 90 degrees in Arizona. It feels very different. Um, it's easier t- for evaporative cooling to occur when it's dry, when it's humid. The, the air is saturated and you don't cool very well. Um, so, I, you know, there are some numbers I found out there for large breeds. They talk about it. Um, you know, anything over 85, you should be really careful with. A medium breed, maybe anything over 90. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of variability there. So, um it's uh again it, it's hard for me to say here's the exact cutoff right. um because i don't want somebody to get themselves in trouble i i would say when in doubt be very cautious and it would it be true a dog that's in shape is going to have be have a better chance of being more heat tolerant yeah, absolutely if you've got an overweight dog uh, that's not well conditioned cardiovascularly they're going to be a greater risk yeah. let's transition to things we see when we're out hunting okay this one happens to me all the time my dog just ate something. I have no idea what it is. I, I might hear a uh, crunching of a bone. It yeah. might be, you know, deer pellets. Yeah. What What do I look for? So, uh, I mean, obviously, try to figure out what it was as best you can. A deer pellets here and there, I'm not too worried about. If a dog's crunching bone shards, that that's more worrisome. Um, certainly... The, the side effects of whatever they ate, if they were to be bad, are going to be, again, gastrointestinal, vomiting, diarrhea, and, and those things aren't necessarily going to show up right away. Mm-hmm. You would be concerned if there's any gagging, any pawing at the mouth, potentially that could indicate that something's stuck, and that's an emergency. Um, 
I would err on the side of not inducing vomiting. You can imagine if a dog's crunching up some hollow bird bones, we do not want to induce vomiting in that dog. Those shards are sharp, and they're very likely to um, potentially traumatize the esophagus when when we induce the vomiting. So um, I... I think I would be very cautious about that. I would probably make sure they have plenty of water, make sure they keep moving. I like uh, I like to keep dogs moving to kind of encourage their gut. Obviously, they're in the field, they're going to be moving anyway, but it encourages their gut to keep moving along and passing mm-hmm. things through. So it's a tricky thing. There's not a, a single antidote. There's not um, a single answer. Kind of trying to know as best you can what it was. Um, monitor your dog for signs. You know, have, a, have local vet numbers handy mm-hmm. uh to contact that's that's important too to kind of um you know ask them what other specific <laughs> advice they might have that's a great point especially if you're a traveling bird mm-hmm. hunter to have um you know if you know you're going to be in mccook nebraska mm-hmm. have the you know if there's a 24-hour vet or at least a vet yeah phone number i think so there's two you know, certainly there's the the daytime hour vet um and and have them available but and if they don't have 24-hour find out who they use for their after hours because mm. so many of these things happen after six o'clock it's just yeah reality. i mean I, we all hunt on saturdays right right, <laughs> right. right. so uh yeah being prepared in that way would be really important smart when it comes to dogs eating weird things i just have to ask this question <laughs> yeah why do some dogs eat poop and why do some dogs <laughs> completely ignore it like yes. I, i've heard mm-hmm. i've heard theories of you know Female dogs will do it because it's a learned trait from their moms, mm-hmm. cleaning out their kennels when they're puppies. Mm-hmm. I don't buy it, but yeah. why is my lab a turd burglar, and why is my Brittany just not care? Because <laughs> um, they're two different individuals. Their brains are that's wired it, differently. Huh? So <laughs> coprophagia, that's we like to use proper terms, stool eating coprophagia <laughs> is within the range of normal. You just turned a new nickname. And it, <laughs> there we go. So, um, yeah, um, your turd burglar is coprophagia we can say <laughs> so there's definitely a level of coprophagia that falls into the normal dog behavior um, I had back when I had two older female dogs the older dog would eat the stool of the younger dog uh, I think it, to, to some reason it was probably a, a territorial thing removing evidence of the younger dog from our yard I can't yeah. prove that um, in the wintertime, the poop sickles are awfully enticing, and dogs will some dogs will throw them in the air, and they'll crunch <laughs> them. They just like it. They like the taste. They, they it's a, a and and so to some extent, um, it can be normal. There absolutely are dogs that can have a almost like a neurosis. Some dogs, believe it or not, will actually eat their feces while they're defecating. I mean that that's not normal. Wow. So that's a whole nother ball game that I we would have to feel address. a lot better about, about <laughs> my home. Okay. So that's a <laughs> this, really uh, so. Um, <laughs> Uh, not to leave you with that in your head, but (laughs) that's sort of the extreme. And I would not consider that within the normal range of behaviors, but unfortunately to some extent dogs just like it. Um, and they may be prone to it. Fortunately, my dog, I I like it when she sniffs poop and walks along on the walks. That's a great thing. But, um, there are in extreme cases, I've had people talk about putting their dogs in basket muzzles when they're outside. So there's a physical barrier. The dog can still open their mouth and drink and pant and those kind of things, but it can't potentially get in their mouth. Um, trying to break the cycle so that it's not available, cleaning up after them so it's just not there. Hopefully their brain will move on to something else and kind of get it out of their wheelhouse. It might take a month or two. Um, Some people use taste deterrents, either mixed in with the food to make the poop taste bag. We joke, we thought nature already took care of that, but apparently (laughs) not. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, follow it around with that that sour apple spray. Yeah, I've (laughs) talked to people about getting a bottle of hot sauce that you put 
some sort of um, um, obvious label on it and going out and seasoning <laughs> some samples in the yard so the dog perhaps has a negative response and maybe that will um, break the cycle. Um, there's no perfect answer, but just know that you're not alone. It's a, it's a common thing. It is uh, certainly unpleasant for us, but not for them. So it's gross, but we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> for the most part. The most I mean, part. obviously there are intestinal parasite issues. If they're eating their own and they're on parasite prevention, things like that, I'm, I'm not too worried about goose poop and rabbit poop or just delightful for many dogs. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about those things too much. They're, those are basically either flying or hopping cows. It's processed mm-hmm. plant material. There's not a whole lot I'm too worried about. Horse those. apples? Again, I grew up around horses and dogs, and they just love those things. Yeah, and, and again, I there's not a whole lot I worry about from the health side of, side of things. Certainly just the aesthetic is unpleasant, but they are tasty for the dogs. Have you ever met a dog that didn't eat grass? I'm sure they're out there, and my dog loves grass. This is like her favorite season now. We're going to have these fresh shoots popping up, and yeah. she will be um, at the salad bar very soon. She loves the fresh grass. That's a pretty normal thing, too. Is that good for them? Or it certainly it- can be. I mean, obviously, all things in moderation. There are dogs that will eat grass or whatever, and it will turn into just a, a matted mass in their stomach, and they can't move it. They can't digest it, and that needs to be removed surgically. Mm-hmm. Um, to some extent, it, it's fine. Um, dogs are omnivores. They have both um, uh, animal and plant material in their diets. They've co-evolved with humans and can digest plant material you know, better than, say, cats. Um, so uh, certainly uh, it can be a normal thing. The, the theories on why they eat it have been – we can't – we can't ask them what their motivation is, of course, mm-hmm. uh, like the eating the stool. We can't ask them, so why do you like deep poop? Um, why are you eating grass? <laughs> I think my dog just really likes it. It's juicy. It's crunchy. Right. Um, one of the theories I like about eating grass is that dogs evolved eating grass because dogs in the wild, canids in the wild, wolves, coyote, foxes, have a constant um, uh, um, um, amount of intestinal parasites. And eating this fairly undigestible fibrous material might help sort of flush them out periodically and keep those parasite loads lower than they would be again like we can't ask why you know we we talked about (laughs) medicating your dog your dog's eating all this stuff and Mm -hmm. develops loose stools right uh pepto-bismol okay to treat with your dog so the first thing i would do with a dog with diarrhea is to withhold food for 12 to 24 hours that's almost always going to be a good plan um Beyond that, I would probably call your vet. I mean, yes, the, I, in the past I have used Pepto-Bismol. We've got some other products and different drugs uh, that will commonly dispense if it's a problem. A lot of diarrheas will self-resolve. Um, you know, the, after the 12 to 24-hour fast, feeding frequent small amounts of bland food, whether that's home-cooked or prescription, is almost always part of our plan. Um, you know, the home cooking basically involves... Uh, three parts of a single easily digested carbohydrate like boiled or steamed white rice or skinless white potatoes or a, like a plain noodle. And then one part of a lean protein. So ground beef, ground turkey bison, uh, scrambled eggs is great, hmm. um, tofu, cottage cheese, things like that. So you mix that three-part carb, one-part protein, and then the dog gets a little meatball every couple of hours so that we're, we're basically trickle feeding. We're feeding little bits at a time, but not so much that there's a large volume of solid material in the gut which will perpetrate the diarrhea continue to pull fluid in we don't want a lot of that going on we want to give the gut a chance to to heal so quite often fasting making sure your dog's well hydrated making sure they have plenty of fresh water available as long as they're not throwing it up mm-hmm. and then frequent small amounts of bland food until they're back to normal stools for a couple of days will will resolve a lot of these things certainly 
if there's blood, that could be potentially a bigger problem, not necessarily. If there's vomiting, if the dog's depressed, if you think they're running a fever. So there's a lot of other things. If your happy-go-lucky dog has loose stool and everything else is completely normal, certainly treating at home, I would say, is a reasonable option. But don't hesitate to call your vet to at least get them in on the on the conversation so that follow-ups can be done if necessary because there are several effective medications we can use to help shorten a course of diarrhea. I'm not saying you have to, um, you know, put up with diarrhea for five days before right. you call your vet. Absolutely not. So go from one end of the dog to the complete mm-hmm. other end of the yeah. dog. Um, I, you know, my oldest pup, Trammel, never has had issues getting things in her eyes when she's out hunting yep. then my my youngest dog Esky, for the first two years just filled with seeds yeah. and twigs and right. she, over time it, it became a non-issue like she learned maybe how to close her eyes when maybe. she's out hunting yeah um but there are some dogs that they never yeah. get over that how do you prevent how do you prevent getting that so, stuff in the eyes um only half jokingly, the only way to prevent it would be put them in a pair of doggles. I mean, there are goggles made for dogs for various reasons. The ones that like to sit in the sidecars or on the motorcycles or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you, you can't really teach your dog to close their eyes at the important times. That the and and it's and it's a real problem. I would say especially in the fall mm-hmm. when things are dry, um, we see a lot of dogs that will come in that will have plant material under one of their three eyelids. You remember, dogs have that nictitating membrane, the third eyelid, and things love to get behind that. And when that happens, um, every time that eyelid moves around it's going to irritate the cornea the clear part of the eye so um, I think one of the things to have handy you know as we're kind of building a, your kit to take in the in the field would be a, a nice bottle of, of sterile saline eye wash and just rinse the heck out of your dog's eyes at the end of the day I mean it, it's going to be pretty tough to get behind the third eyelid but you do what you reasonably can do you can get under the upper and lower uh, main eyelids easily um, and then you know hope for the best for that because practically speaking to get behind the third eyelid you need topical anesthetic and you know other implements so so if your dog's getting the constant like corner eye boogers mm-hmm. right the discharge yeah pretty good chance there's something underneath the third eyelid I, I mean it could be infectious we see bacterial and viral infections that will cause red eyes and discharge i'm, I'm actually treating my own dog right now because she's had red goopy eyes and she's squinting at me um uh Absolutely foreign material, especially in a field dog. I would, that would always be high on our list of mm-hmm. possibilities. So we would want to go in and try to find anything that's there to remove it. Check the eye, make sure there's no scratches to the cornea. We have special stain, that you know that, that lime green fluorescent yellow stain that a lot of people have seen us use. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it could be allergy, you know, this time of year, um, if you have both eyes inflamed, allergies are definitely going to be on the list of possibilities. Could be trauma. Uh, usually that's going to be one eye. So there's a lot of reasons for eyes to be red and, and to have discharge. That's, there's not an easy answer without looking more closely. Hmm. The nose. Mm-hmm. What makes a bird dog a bird dog. Right. Is that nose. Yeah. It, is there, are you aware of any research that like categorizes some dogs um, at higher level of nose ability than others? I know they've done some things like with, for example, um, let's say bloodhounds. You know, mm-hmm. the, these dogs supposedly have, they're so great for um, forensic work. Um, and I think that a lot of the theory for those guys is that, and I don't know if this has been proven, but the folds of the skin hold scent and it kind of makes it easier for them to smell. I, I do think 
you can probably find lists out there of dogs that have, uh, you know, which dogs have better sense of smell than other dogs. Um, I don't know exactly where, but, you know, your your bird dogs have got to be way up on the list. Yeah. I mean, that's what they've been bred over the centuries for. And they're, you know, I'm a type 1 diabetic, and they're using dogs now to, to um, sense when blood sugar is going up and down. Yeah, we um, we actually work with quite a few service dogs, and, and we've um, um, worked reached out to the, the organizations in the Twin Cities that work with service dogs. I am constantly impressed by the service dogs. They, it's quite obvious that they're only limited to our imaginations, what we can train them to do. We've got service dogs for, yes, sensing low blood sugar, for... Um, uh, uh, autistic kids for seizures, for mental health, um, depression, uh, uh, mobility work, obviously blind, uh, hearing it, 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 they're an amazing species when it comes to being able to be trained to help people. Hmm. Um, going back into the field, Hmm. one of the biggest fears of a bird hunter is their dog coming back to them with a uh, coming up lame yeah, right? yeah. that uh, that dreaded acl injury and the i know andrew's three of the worst letters you want to hear yeah uh, you know first of all how do you know that you have a a, a big mm-hmm. issue yeah and what do you do next so um lameness can run the gamut from a soft tissue, acute injury, muscle, ligament, tendon that will resolve within hours to days to uh, full tears or fractures of bones, obviously. And so determining which of those things it is in the field, it's pretty tough. I think at least in the acute phase, you need to probably be um, just suspect that it could be bad, in which case, you know, that dog's done for the day. Um, uh, Maybe... um, um, talk to your vet maybe you want to have some prescription anti-inflammatories uh on a in your in your first aid kit as a on a preventive basis maybe something you know again your vet would need to know the circumstances of your pet to whether that's uh, okay or not um you know the, the only way to determine what those what the problem is is through exam and x-rays and things like that and so um you know, preventing, you know, if we want to talk about ACL, anterior cruciate ligament injury, um, it's one of the most common um, non-elective surgeries that's done out there by the, the surgical specialists. They're, they're fixing knees all day long, multiple knees a day. Really? Yeah, it's a really common problem. Um, certainly, there's probably some genetic predisposition that the angle of the knee between the, the femur and the tibia can play a part and... Um, um, so th- there's not much you can control about that. That's going to be genetic. Obviously, an overweight animal is much more at risk because there's more force on the knee. Um, so, again, um, having a healthy, trim dog, it's it's always a good idea. Um, if your dog has had one knee injury, it's more likely to have one on the other side. That absolutely can happen, unfortunately. Um and then as far as, you know, fixing it, you know, if it is the cruciate ligament injury, there's medical versus surgical correction. And it really depends on, on so many things. If you come in with a 15-year-old dog that's in the, you know, twilight of its life and it's suddenly torn its knee, are, are we going to recommend that that dog go to surgery? We, we'd have to discuss that, you know. Um, if you got a young dog, 
um, that otherwise is very healthy, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend surgery if, it, if it's appropriate. Um, otherwise, medical management is going to go back to the same kind of things with chronic pain management we talked about. There are uh, certain rehab uh, techniques that can be done, rehab facilities that can be um, taken advantage of. Uh, there are some great braces out there that can stabilize the knee and make them more comfortable. So um, there's a number of options. And it, again, it's, it's all about the specifics of the of the of the of the case of the patient hmm. have you ever seen the the medical uh approach actually like actually work so like just, be, just being honest Cause yeah. so because with my lab she tore her acl and her back left mm -hmm. uh, foot or mm -hmm. sorry leg yep when she was two <clears throat> which meant i was 25 mm. which meant i was broke yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, like i'm just thinking like oh no like what are my options here yeah. of course it's like okay well I'll do the medical approach in terms of the rehab, keep her kenneled as much as possible. Yeah. And I tried that for a really long time, yeah. just knowing that, you know, that giant vet bill was looming in my future yeah. if I didn't go that route. Yeah. And eventually I did because my yeah. dad's like, you're an idiot. Yeah. Like, let's take care of this. You were 25. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> but like, have you ever seen it like, really so, work or people just kind of avoiding what they have to do? So I would say it works if we have a ligament strain. So the ligament is stretched as opposed to torn. If your dog has a fully torn cruciate ligament, I don't think medical management is the best option. I, I, I never would say that. Um, if you have a partial tear, the, the ligament, I, I describe it as like a braided piece of rope, multi-fibrous, and you can stretch that. You can tear a few fibers, in which case it loses some strength, or you can snap the whole thing, sometimes even with meniscal damage. The meniscus is the cartilage cushioning between the, the femur and the tibia. I, I had a third of my meniscus removed years ago from, from running and some chronic injury. Um, so that can be damaged as well. If you have a full tear, um, I would tell you to expect to have a limping dog for the rest of their life. That knee is going to be at severe risk of developing arthritis, uh, fairly quickly. And once that arthritis develops, there's nothing you can do to make it go away. We're back to chronic pain management. And if that dog's really limping, that good leg may not be good for long because it's carrying a lot more weight and doing a lot more work that was never intended to do. So mm -hmm. I think medical management can work if it's a stretch, a partial tear, a small, healthy weighted dog. Now, those are going to be your best chances. If it's, you know, any of that stuff isn't true, you're going to pony up. And and honestly, sooner the better, because that knee will never be 100% again, and the arthritis is going to start developing as soon as that knee becomes unstabilized. So um, you can stabilize it and make them more comfortable, but um, the, the risk of developing chronic arthritis, degenerative joint disease, osteoarthritis, whatever you want to call it down the road, is is really high. So it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. I've had uh, someone do both knees on their dog on the same procedure, which seems pretty crazy because it had torn one and it blew the other one. Um, you know, you'd like to avoid that, but there are pros and cons to doing that. But it's, um, it's something we, we diagnose cruciate disease on a weekly basis. It's a very common problem, mm. unfortunately. So with how common that is, <clears throat> what are your thoughts on pet insurance? <laughs> you just read my mind. <laughs> I was, I was, I was no, literally going to say, like, if is, only is it, you had you pet insurance. Yeah, do you think it's worth it or like... It, well, any let's be honest. Any insurance is a gamble. It's not worth it if you never use it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's no way to know if you're going to need it or not. So we do not sell pet insurance. We don't have any wellness plans. I, I've That's a whole other broadcast. But um, I do think they're worth it for people that want that peace of mind. So pet insurance, there's some good plans out there. 
that cover either just, you know, major medical surgical issues such as a knee. There's some that cover that as well as uh, preventive care. Those are going to be much more expensive because you're using those much more often. They're going to vary in price based on the breed. Uh, unfortunately, there are plenty of purebred dogs that have long lists of things they're known to get, cancers, orthopedic problems, all these other kind of things, as opposed to your Heinz 57, medium-sized dog, you know, healthy weighted is going to be a lot less expensive. Hmm. So... Um, I would absolutely think long and hard about pet insurance if I was a pet owner, um, especially with certain breeds or if they're going to be really active. Um, you know, at one point is the break even. At what point do you feel it was worth it? That's a very personal thing. But I, I do like to people to think about it and make that decision and, and be informed that we, there are some good options out there should you want to take advantage of them. Did you have pet insurance for, for Bo? Or is that spelled D-A-D? Yeah, Dad? Dad helped me out there big yeah, time. Yeah. That's why he's fi- I think he probably just felt bad for the dog. He's like, well, whatever it oh, took. you've got I'm him kitty me. Well, he likes to yeah. take her to South Dakota from time uh, to time, too. Okay. So he had some stake in the game. <laughs> I am. Um, but, but, yeah. I, I have a hard time. Every now and then I'll get a dog that I think is a good surgical candidate, and for whatever reason, that dog does not get to have surgery. And, and it's hard to watch these dogs because they hop around three, three-and-a-half-legged lame for the rest of their life. And you know i i respect people's choices but it's it's still hard to know that that animal is suffering so you do everything right you diagnose the acl you you make the decision very quickly what are the odds of that dog being a hundred percent in a year uh functionally uh excellent yeah. really yeah, absolutely yeah and and um we generally uh, recommend those sort of procedures be done by a boarded, uh, board-certified veterinary surgeon. That doesn't mean there aren't general practitioners in the Twin Cities who have had special training in these techniques. Um, and the main reason to do that would be a cost savings. A general practitioner doing these uh, procedures is going to be much less expensive than a boarded surgeon. That being said, the boarded surgeon almost certainly has done more very likely has a, a, a greater success rate, a lower failure rate, things like that, just because of the nature of being a specialist. Okay. So um, if your dog were to have that, I think it's fair to have that discussion. You know, what what's the best option to have the surgery done? You know, for example, we have uh, boarded surgeons. We just had one last week that we can bring into the hospital and do the surgery in our space. Uh, and that potentially can be less expensive than sending that animal to a surgical center. Um, so th- there are a number of options uh, available. Uh, another fear of every hunter after the ACL, mm-hmm. right, is what the dog is going to encounter out there in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in all across pheasant country, in the and in the Northwoods, you're thinking about porcupines, <laughs> or even even Montana yeah. out in the prairie where there's no trees. Yeah, it was sharp tail yeah. hunting this uh, this past September. And we had nine dogs with us. Seven of them got into porcupines. And, you know, it just, there's porcupines everywhere, right? So, right. obviously, you carry a set of needle nose pliers. Right. What else but, you got to pay attention to? <sighs> Porcupine uh, quills are designed to be horrendous. They, if, if you've ever seen a microscopic picture of a porcupine quill, they're incredibly sharp. And they're basically covered with you would say they look like fish scales. So they're like a barbed hook. They're made to go in one way and they are not made to come out. Um, so um, once they go in, if they get in very far at all, you're working against all those barbs. So it can be really hard to get them out. They're hollow. They can break when you're pulling them out. The other thing that happens with those barbs is it tends to allow these quills to migrate through the soft tissue. So you have a dog that might get them 
and they're always in the front. And I've never seen a dog back into a porcupine. They're always in their <laughs> face. They're in their mouth. They're in their face. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a quill broken off, and it can these quills can make their way into the dog's chest. They can cause big problems depending on what organs they may come in contact with. So certainly removing what you can. Um, very often it requires heavy sedation or anesthesia. I've had to, um, I had a, a dog several months ago that had, quills and they thought they got them all out and I thought I could feel one in the mouth and so we anesthetized the dog and I found that one but then looking around I found a couple more that had broken out under the gum line so I had to incise the gum tissue to take it out and you know so you always have to worry that you've missed one uh, mm. they're they're uh, insidious they're they can be very small they can break off so yeah the pliers is a is a reasonable thing to do um, if you can but um, there's a limit to how effective that's going to be hmm. so you almost want to schedule an x-ray for when you get home even yeah if you, the, even if you feel like you've gotten them all just to be, the, be sure the, the problem is the x-ray may not show very well i mean you mm-hmm. might have to quite honestly do more advanced imaging like ct or because um the quill itself is um not particularly radio dense it's kind of soft like i said it's it's hollow um and so it may not show up on an x-ray um you know, th- honestly, there are other things that might need to be done to find out um, if it's uh, migrated somewhere in a CT. You know, they don't do those for free. Not everybody has those. That's a referral situation. So um, it's uh, I, I, the vets up north have to deal with that a whole lot more than we do. Mm-hmm. We we occasionally get one because they came home and just, you know, for whatever reason. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real deal. And dogs do not learn. They yeah. just don't. You know, you'll have a dog that's had multiple porcupine encounters and, um, obviously the, uh, another concern would be, you know, if they get them in their eyes, you know, mm-hmm. that's a, that could be a lost eye easily, but most of the time it seems to be soft tissues around the face or the nose and things like that. Uh, another buddy's dog attacked a raccoon and got a really bad disease from raccoon. I, I, and I can't remember the name of that. Disease. Well, uh, so first of all, raccoons can carry dog distemper. So here's a great reason to make sure your dog's current on distemper. Um, they have nasty, sharp teeth and they're not clean mouths and so those can be really nasty bite wounds um what disease that was from the raccoon i guess i'm not entirely sure but um the other thing you hear about is like muskrat encounters Mm -hmm. um muskrats being um uh gnawing like beavers uh they have uh their their front incisors are like chisels they are incredibly sharp and they will cut these dogs up significantly The, the muskrat may end up on the short of the stick at the end of this encounter, uh, but it will um, absolutely do its best to inflict damage. And this time of year, we're getting into muskrat breeding season. They're going to be all over the roads and moving around, and they are scrappy little buggers. So mm. um, a lot of things out there with teeth that can cause some significant injury. All right. So in our hunting vest, we all want to think about first aid yeah. uh, that mm-hmm. we're carrying for our dog. Yeah. I've uh, mentioned needle nose pliers for mm-hmm. porcupines. And maybe some some tweezers or a like mosquito like little hemostats small tipped things for getting small stuff okay um let's see a, a lot of things i mean at some point you got to be actually be able to carry this thing but yeah. <laughs> i would make sure you have something for disinfection whether it's alcohol wipes or a small bottle of like iodine or chlorhexidine disinfecting solution um some gauze maybe some non-sterile but also some sterile gauze maybe some swabs cotton tip swabs um Things like other equipment would be uh, scissors, maybe some blunt tip scissors for cutting bandaging and things like that. A couple different types of bandaging, some some good white tape. Um, eye wash, we talked about that before as far as rinsing these pup's eyes mm-hmm. out at the end of the day. Uh, maybe a, a, a 
some towels, some all towels, something. Um, very often, if you've got a really painful dog, you may want like a soft muzzle because they will, um, if they're painful enough, they can bite and you might be able to do things if you can get the muzzle on them. Mm. Uh, some treats to distract them from less painful things. Um, certainly, this is not an exhaustive list. You can use like styptic powder. You break a nail. Maybe that's the clotting powder that sure. we use if a nail gets trimmed too short. Um, the phone numbers, again, great to have the phone numbers in your kit for your local vets. Uh, maybe a thermometer. I've had Benadryl. Uh, my dog's been stung by like, a swarm of bees before. Okay, yeah. And that's one you do want to... Uh, Benadryl is a, is a over-the-counter human medication that we use off-label quite a bit. But I would um, get a dose from your vet ahead of time. Yeah. Again, maybe having uh, some prescription pain medication in your, in your kit as opposed to aspirin just would be safer. Um, what about uh, snake country? dog gets uh, bit by a snake will benadryl help stall that or is there anything that helps stall it so uh, potentially the benadryl could help with some of the allergic reaction that you th that would be similar to the reaction from a bee sting uh, the problem with with snake bites is the actual venom, whether it's a hemotoxin or a neurotoxin. Um, there are vaccines for some of those kind of things. And the vets that live in those and work in those territories have, um, have, uh, you know, the, the, um, the antidote. Yep. So it, Benadryl is probably not going to hurt in that situation, but I wouldn't um, say, oh, here's your Benadryl. I'm not going to worry about it today. I would give them the Benadryl um, and try to, um, I wouldn't do any tourniquets, but I would uh, keep that body part below the heart. You want things to spread as slowly as possible, so don't hold it up. Hmm. Uh, tourniquets, you know, my old Boy Scout days, we talked about tourniquets and a little suction cup and little uh, scalpel blades to make an X over each of the tooth punctures and sucking out the venom. And we don't, we don't recommend that <laughs> okay. anymore. We don't recommend that. Please do not come in with your dog in a tourniquet because the salvage procedure to lose the leg may be the only option at that point. Uh, so so uh, keep the dog quiet. Uh, try to keep him relaxed. Uh, and again, keeping that, that bitten part below the heart, if you can, will we'll somewhat slow um, um, you know, circulation of the venom. Okay. So I noticed you left a stapler off your list. Oh, so is, is that something that amateurs like myself? Because I am guilty of <coughs> using one. Like, is that does that actually cause more long term problems? And it's worth. So I, I, it wasn't an intentional. We use staples here, yep. and so the big question is. Um, you know, do you grab one off your desk as you're leaving the house <laughs> versus do you have some way to purchase a sterile surgical staple? The mm -hmm. the surgical staples can be really handy. They don't go through the skin. They simply pinch the skin and pull it together from both sides. Um, that's one of those sort of personal things that if you're comfortable, I would be cautious about uh, enclosing an infected wound, um, enclosing foreign material. If it hasn't been fully cleaned out, you could be setting yourself up for infection. Um, but uh, so in general, I would, uh, unless it's a life-threatening laceration or something like that, I would probably clean it really well, cover it with some sterile gauze and have it seen as soon as possible. We try to clean, we try to close those things. If we see them within 12 to 24 hours in the human world, they won't close wounds after just a few hours mm -hmm. because of infection risk. But um, for the most part, we can take care of those oftentimes, you know, with the aid of antibiotics afterwards. So the, the staplers can be uh, very handy. Um, you, you probably can achieve something similar uh, just by cleaning and closing the wound and pulling the sides together. Use some say maybe some little butterfly bandages and things like that might achieve something. But that 
it's an option. So certainly. in that same vein, stay away from the super glue too, because you're probably just trapping. Yeah, and honestly, if you've got a laceration of any size, that stuff's not going to work. We use we use tissue glue here. Um, usually, it's just to pull little uh, to to um, on very sort of minor things. At the end of certain surgeries, we want to completely bury all of our absorbable suture. We might throw a little suture glue in just to pull the skin margins together, nice and dry and clean. If you've got a bloody wound, it is not going to work. Hmm. You know, because it's cuts from barbed wire. Oh, yeah. I mean, that happens all the time. All in the, the time. Field. Yeah. Um, it, it, has anybody ever asked you to show them how to use the staple? Because most of our first aid kits come with this little plastic stapler. I mean, Honest, we sell oh, it, was, it was trial by yeah. fire during the Rooster Road trip this past fall. It's, it's like, okay, I guess we're it's using a, this thing. It's pretty straightforward, <laughs> quite yeah. honestly. Yeah, I mean, and that's great. We we uh, like to, and it's and it's great if you have a prepex, you know, sterile stapler. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's certainly an option. I wouldn't tell anyone don't use it. Just keep in mind that you might be enclosing an infection or something like that. Maybe maybe you leave the bottom of the laceration open so drainage can occur. Um, that's not a bad thing to do, uh, depending on where it is in the body. Gotcha. But um, sometimes that drainage can help you out. All right, the money ball question. As we uh, as we think about our membership, mm-hmm. you know, bird dog owners through and through. Yeah, you you see dog owners, pet owners of all types. Mm-hmm. You know, from mm-hmm. the pugs to the cats to the bird dog owners. We do, and it keeps the job interesting. And I appreciate <laughs> every single one of them. Well, any any generalizations you can make about uh, bird dog owners that are unique from a veterinary vet veterinarian's perspective. So they tend to be. Great pet owners. These are um, people that are really in tune with their dogs. They know what to expect from them. They know when things go wrong. Um, uh, they're they're great from my perspective. They're great owners. They want to do uh, what's right to, pr- to to protect their dogs and to take good care of them. They take great care of their dogs, and when they retire them, they take great care of these retired dogs and make sure they stay comfortable and all those kind of things. So um, I, I I'm never sorry to see a bird dog owner come in the door. They, they're um, they're they're so in tune with their animal, uh, and they appreciate them so much. Uh, um, in a way, even more than just as a pet, as a, as a hunting partner, yeah. um, they respect their pet that way, and um, they're 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 great owners. So we're kind of like helicopter parents for dogs, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you you probably see that right. in every breed. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, from my perspective, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. For <laughs> Come sure. in, we're happy to see you. <laughs> uh, what should we have asked about or talked about that we haven't uh, we haven't so, prodded? So um, I think a couple things. So things. I, let's just reiterate a few things, and then one thing that we haven't touched at all. Um, vaccines, make sure those are up to date. Talk long and hard with your vet about Lyme and leptospirosis. So if they don't offer leptospirosis, which not every vet does, ask them why and tell them why you're concerned about it. Because I think it's important. Not every vet vaccinates for lepto, but I think we should. Keep your pet's parasite prevention up to date. Parasite prevention means heartworm and typically intestinal hookworm roundworm. That's a combination preventive product. And then your flea tick. So there's there's two separate classes of parasites that we need to prevent. Mm. Um, people sometimes intermix those things, and their animal's only on one thing, and there's no one thing that does all of that. Gotcha. So make sure the heartworm prevention we want to use year-round, it maximizes heartworm prevention. The heartworm, the drug in the heartworm prevention only kills the microscopic microflare, the larval, the baby heartworms. And so those can survive uh, into the winter. Heart guard is, or heartworm prevention is not only given during mosquito season. We want to give it year-round. Plus, the intestinal parasites, the hookworms and roundworms, uh, that the heartworm prevention generally prevent can be active in the wintertime. So, and then the flea tick, 
for the most part, we're still seasonal. We used to say April through October. Now we say March through November. I can I can see within the next couple of years, we're going to say, let's just, we should be doing this year on because of the ticks. It's all about the ticks. Mm -hmm. So um, I would absolutely do the seasonal. And if people choose, if they travel anywhere south of here, I would do it year round. Um, healthy weight is a, is, is huge. Um, it's always easier to maintain a healthy weight than to, to lose weight. Um, I will attest to that personally. <laughs> um, and then another interesting thing that's come up here in the last year or so and again, this is a rabbit hole that we can go down is grain-free diets. Mm. So 10, 15 years ago, grain-free diets took on a life of their own, not from any push from the veterinary world, um, but more from the, the public and people that wanted to produce different types of dog foods. And there was this assumption that that grain-free food is important and necessary and the best thing for dogs and so primarily through the power of marketing and the internet grain-free foods have blown up in the last several years and there's lots of different grain-free foods out there for dogs cats i think should be on grain feed that's a whole nother situation but dogs being omnivorous uh th it they have a certain amount of plant material uh they they've co-evolved with humans so they can digest that um and and there are um, corn, a lot of people think corn is, is evil. Corn is a great energy source and a great partial protein. If you talk to veterinary nutritionists who are my go-to authorities on diets, not somebody on the internet that, that just makes food, um, they like grains, uh, as food components. So in the last, uh, it's probably been less than a year, there's been more and more cases coming out of typically medium to large sized dogs that have been on grain-free diets that have developed a type of heart disease called dilated cardiomyopathy, DCM, in breeds that are not known to develop this disease. This disease has been diagnosed in giant breeds and large breeds like Mastiffs and Dobermans and you know some certain breeds that we're not that surprised to see. Unfortunately, we don't see it that often, but suddenly there were dogs developing this disease that were not on our radar. Mm. Um, and they seem to fall in two different classes. There's golden retrievers, um, who seem to be experiencing the problem because they, uh, uh, insufficient levels of taurine, taurine is an amino acid, insufficient levels of taurine in these grain-free diets. Grain-free seem to be the common denominator. Hmm. And then there's the other class of dogs, which are sort of the other breeds. Taurine doesn't seem to be as critical, but there seems to be associations with legumes, so, uh, soy, peas, uh, different things like that there's way more that we don't know about this problem than what we know, but there, it, it might be that it, those products affect taurine absorption or metabolism or the body to be able to make use of it. Um, there's also concerns about um, some of the non-traditional protein sources. You can buy dog food out there that has kangaroo, mm. for example. Um, and one of the problems is um, how consistently sourced is this kangaroo What's the full nutritional profile of kangaroo meat fed to American dogs? We, we don't really know. Hmm. Um, so the bottom line now is, um, and this is based on conversations and lectures I've attended from uh, board-certified veterinary nutritionists and board-certified veterinary cardiologists, um, we generally recommend affording what we call BEG diets, B-E-G, boutique, exotic, and grain-free. Boutique are the small batch, fancy-packaged, expensive food that make lots of high-flying claims. Um, 
primarily because those are small companies that generally aren't employing veterinary nutritionists to, to formulate their diets. So you really don't know how balanced and nutritious these meals are. Um, exotic foods, the kangaroo would be the one I would throw into that. Sticking with traditional uh, protein and carbohydrate sources, uh, because we know most about them, is smart. And then the grain-free. Hmm. So um, the, the, the way that rattles out is... Um, in many cases, uh, you're probably going to be safe sticking with one of the major food producers. I'm, I'm not being compensated by any of those, but those generally fall into, is that okay to mention brands? Sure. Okay. So Purina, they've been around forever. Um, um, Hills or Science Diet, mm -hmm. it's the same company. Imes Yukonuba, same company. And then Royal Canin. Yep. Those are the four uh, that have board certified veterinary nutritionists on their staff. They do lots of research. Um, we're comfortable that... Um, those are safe foods to feed. Doesn't mean that if your dog's been on grain-free, it's going to develop this problem, but we think it's important to take reasonable preventive steps. Um, and there are plenty of food producers that aren't going to want to hear me say that, but that's the reality. We have to advocate for our patients first and foremost. Well, and we'll throw in the uh, gratuitous um, advertising pitch from a Pheasants Forever perspective, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Purina Pro Plan is the official dog food Great. of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. They support our <coughs> conservation mission, and you're glad it worked out that way. You're starting to sweat over there. No, right? no, I was, uh, I was good because uh, you know, should have given me a heads up first. No, I, I was thinking about this the whole way because uh, you know it's the. It's got the purple bag with the German short-haired pointer right, nice, on, right, right on the packaging. Yeah. And we know that they um, employ a whole bunch of veterinarians and support bird dogs for habitat, too. Yeah. So you didn't even know you were making a pitch, I but didn't. it worked out for yeah, you. Yeah. My feeling about pet nutrition is there's more misinformation and anecdotes. The, the Internet is a valuable resource. It is also a huge repository for anecdote and opinion. Um, and, and pet nutrition is probably in my field, probably the number one field where there's misinformation out there. So hmm. ask your vet, you know, uh, look for reputable sources um, because um, there's a lot of food rankings out there that, that are just bogus. Hmm. Yeah. All manufactured for the internet. Clickbait. It's true. Andrew, what do we miss? Any, any final thoughts, questions for you? Well, in terms of final thoughts, I, I guess I came here wanting to find some uh, secret to longevity. Like, how do I get my, my dog to, to live forever? Mm. Um, but besides, you know, keeping them at a healthy weight and exercise, there really it doesn't exist. So yeah. you better just enjoy the time you have. and get Absolutely. This. I mean, we know it's limited, but weight, nutrition, exercise, I mean, it sounds like we're talking about ourselves, yeah, but sure. realistically, it, it it's not rocket science. I mean, those are, are incredible. The, the research is that, that trim healthy weight dogs absolutely live longer, healthier lives than overweight, even though they're just a couple pounds overweight. So um, you do the best you can. You enjoy them as long as you can. As they get older, don't forget that they're probably going to get arthritic. 80% of the dogs in your 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 field are going to become arthritic at some time. And we and don't just think that's a, a normal part of aging and there's nothing you can do about it. there absolutely are things we can do to make your older pet more comfortable and increase their quality of life i mean it, it's absolutely about quality of life we i rarely push anyone to do something simply to extend a dog's life it's not about quantity the only thing the dog knows on any given day is how they feel at that time so it's all about quality of life and making the time we have with them as as comfortable as we can so that's a great takeaway 
If folks want to learn more about White Bear Animal Hospital or ask you some follow-up questions, how, how do they find you? So uh, we have a, a nice website that has a lot of information on it. It's easy. It's whitebearanimalhospital.com. Nothing crazy, nothing uh, exciting. Our office number is 651-777-1393. Uh, and then I'm on email a lot. And it's just our uh, clinic initials, W-B-A-H at comcast.net so one of those three you will get us thank you very much for uh, taking the time to share some advice and expertise absolutely with us. no I, I um educating clients is uh, something i really like to do and, and i think um you know the better educated clients are the better the care they're going to take of their pets so and and you guys already have that down though. well and, and i'll throw out that you know the moral of the story for me is you know as we think about it being april um yeah, we got a long time before hunting season, mm-hmm. but that that means that you got to make sure you keep your dog in shape, mm-hmm. worry about nutrition, worry about mm-hmm. diet and health. I mean, it comes down to basics. It really does. I mean, there's it, it, you, you handle the basic stuff well, you're going to be fine. Yeah, and it, it once you get to those moments that you're going to cherish, come October, mm-hmm. you get if your dog's in good shape and yeah. healthy, um, you know, those memories will live forever, even if that pup maybe has 12 or 14 years with you so right uh get out there folks exercise your dog uh you will really appreciate it come october come november and um also check be sure to check out uh, birddogsforhabitat.org it will be running through the remainder of the month of april Again, thank you to Dr. Stuart Dalton of White Bear Animal Hospital. And uh, uh, we will be back at you with another episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever in the very near future. Till then, birddogsforhabitat.org. Get out there and vote, especially you Team GSPers. (laughs) Go short hairs.